Hey, I am so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Josh, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm so thankful for uh, people like Tim and Hannah and their leadership and uh, to be able to sit under them. I just so appreciate that. But I want to let you guys know uh, that in the summer months, there's always kind of a lull in terms of our volunteers, in terms of the people who are serving. And that's true in all of our areas of ministry with kids, with the First Impressions team, and with the band and the tech team. And so I just want to encourage you, maybe you were serving and you were thinking about coming back on and serving again, or maybe you've never served. I would love to talk to you about that, or maybe more appropriately, another one of the leaders, the great leaders who are here, who are currently serving, can tell you more about that as well. So I just, I just appreciate that, because I know how important uh, this is for ministry here. And I want to tell you, uh, this morning we were getting all set, and uh, I've told this joke like three times already and, and to people, and, and it's probably too much at this point, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, but I was talking with Hannah, our drummer here, and who's, who's back there, and she was asking me about my new job. See, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be have next Sunday will be my last Sunday. In the beginning of August, I'm going to take on a new role as the campus pastor of Anderson University. And one of my big tasks, one of my big roles, is twice a week I'm in charge of the campus-wide chapel, uh, the campus-wide chapel. So I'll be doing that. And, and Hannah was asking me some great questions about that, like what am I excited about, what are the things that are going on. And she just asked me ever so delicately, is there going to be someone who's in charge of the music? And is there going to be someone who's going to be in charge of the worship experience, right? And I said, yes, absolutely. And she says, oh, good. Because if you guys know me, if we've been around a lot, that's, that's definitely one of my weak areas. If you stood next to me while I'm singing, I know the people up here, sometimes I'll really get into a song I'm singing out, and I think I throw them off, right? Like, it's an issue. I'm a little bit tone deaf as well. But I'm so excited for people like Tim and Hannah, for people that serve in all the different capacities here at Movement Church, because that is really, man, that's what makes things so great here at Movement. So, hey, before I jump in here, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning. I want to take a time, I want to pray a little bit with you. So let's pray together. Father, as we uh, come to your word, as we come to ancient, ancient stories that are weird, that, that are odd, that, that don't make sense in our understanding, that we have a hard time connecting how this makes sense for us. God, I just, I just pray that you would show us what's going on here, that you would give us a dose of humility, that, that we can step back and recognize that these stories have been passed down generation after generation, preserved, and, and have such value and life for us to look at. So, Father, as we do that, allow your word to speak to us. Allow your spirit to move us forward. Amen. Amen. Hey, last week, if you were with us here at Movement Church, you got to hear from my friend Stephen Sams, and he's part of the management team here at Movement Church, and he has been with us from the start, and I just wanted to say thank you to him. We had a great vacation last week, and it was great to be able to tune in and be able to worship with you guys online and to hear from Stephen as well. So thank you uh, to him uh, for that. But we're going we're gonna to read a lengthy, lengthy section of Scripture. It's going to be 2 Kings chapter 5 verses 1 through 19. And this is a weird story. This is an odd story. We're going to spend some time trying to understand it, trying to kind of figure out what's going on here. But I would love for you to follow along either on an app in the Bible there in, in front of you or here on the screen behind me. 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. 
Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone to, to, to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Pharpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. So I told you this is a weird story. It's a weird story, not just because there are things here that are hard for us to get our heads around, that we don't know the context, we don't know all the players, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but it's also a weird story because it's surprising. It doesn't go how you might expect it. See, so often the stories of the Bible are there because they are surprising, because they are revealing, because they give such hope. So when we read these scriptures, we have to look out for these things. But also, particularly when we're reading the Old Testament, we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to try to extrapolate, not to take one instance, one story, and make that a universal law. Because what we'll see in this story is that you can find other stories of the Old Testament. You can find other instances in Elisha's life, the same prophet, the same prophet. You find other instances where things here don't match up. 
But I think this is an important story. This is an important story. It's in Scripture. It matters. God wants us to have this. So what do we do with it? I think this is an important story as we look ahead to next week, as we talk about baptisms, as we celebrate that. But I think it's also as we, important as we look ahead in terms of the future of Movement Church. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you three things. I want to give you a reminder. I want to give you a warning. And I want to give you a challenge. A reminder, a warning, and a challenge. First, the reminder. The reminder is this. God is universal. God is universal. Look back there to verse 1 of chapter 5 here in 2 Kings. We see how God is universal. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, a few things. Naaman is a soldier. He's a general. He's a commander of the army. He's a commander of the king of Aram, which is in the kingdom of Syria. This was an enemy general. This is a guy who's on the outside of things. He is the commander of a force that will later in the story of Elisha square off with the forces of Israel. We read in the context that he was in some sort of skirmish or battle with Israelites and took captive a young girl. This is a guy who would be be painted as an enemy. He is an outsider. But yet we also read that God gives him favor. That God gives him favor because he is a good man. That God decides to bless this man, but he also has leprosy. See, the understanding, and one of the things that is so revolutionary about the Old Testament is that the understanding at that time in the ancient world is that gods were localized. Gods were localized and gods were specialized. That in the pantheon, in the whole grouping of gods, all those lowercase g gods, you would have things that were in charge of certain aspects of life and over certain areas or regions. And so this idea that a God could be universal, that the Lord God of Israel could have influence and could be with somebody who's in a foreign land is a very revolutionary idea. And what we see here is the way in which God is universal is that God is working in ways that are unlikely, in people that are unlikely. See, we, we remember that, that God is already at work in our lives. In the eight years or so that I've been the pastor of Movement Church, one of the things that I've seen over and over again is people showing up, people showing up and sharing part of their story. And part of their story would often have some sort of caveat or some sort of context. I used to go to church, but now I'm back. I, I, I have some issues in my past, but I'm ready to start fresh. And I love that spirit of wanting to start fresh and wanting to to kind of pursue new things and better things and the things of God. But understand this, in all of our stories, God does not show up at one point when we decide to follow him. No, God is active. God is part of our life from the very start. In Naaman's life, in Naaman's life, God is at work, even if Naaman doesn't realize it. So maybe you need to hear this. Maybe you're in one of those spots where we sang that song safe and we feel like we're that desperate person, we're that person without hope. Hear this. Even if you don't feel it, even if you don't realize it, even if it's not happening the way you want, God is at work in your life. What I love about baptism, what I love about baptism and celebrating that, as we will next week, is that it celebrates a moment. It gives us a milestone on our journey of faith, right? But it also celebrates what has happened, what is happening, and what will continue to happen.
understand that we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that God is universal, that in the years to come of Movement Church, there will be moments where people show up, where people are part of this. The story expands and grows, and what we'll have to grapple with over and over and over again is that God has already been at work, that God is setting things up for the future. God was at work in Naaman's life for something to come. God is at work in our lives for something to come as well. So it's a reminder. We need to remember that as we move forward. The second, the warning. The warning. We need to be warned. We need to be cautious that the warning is this. Don't assume God's actions. Don't assume God's actions. See, what we see here with Naaman is his salvation, his cleansing, his healing comes in very unlikely means. It comes in unconventional ways. Let me explain it this way. He is told to go and dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. Now, there's things that we read about the Jordan River, and at at flood stage in the ancient world, it could be a very treacherous river to cross. But today, by the time it gets all the way south to the Dead Sea, it's dried up. I've been to the headwaters of the Jordan River, kind of where it starts, and it's of course, been commercialized. I think John the Baptist would have things to say about this. When I was in Israel, we went to the headwaters of the Jordan River, and it is kind of this set-up, commercialized thing. There's all these shops you can buy. You know, I went to the Jordan River, and I got baptized. You can buy little vials of water. You can do all these little knickknacks things, right? And we're there, and I'm there with a group of pastors, and some of these pastors are making a decision to get rebaptized. They want to get rebaptized there in the Jordan River. A beautiful moment, an incredible act of worship. And so we get there, and they, they've got this built-up area. It's like concrete, and the, the river at its widest, maybe 150 feet. It's a very small thing, but it's very lush and gorgeous. It's, it's very, very nice there. And they have these steps that go from these embankments, these artificial embankments, where you can walk down in the water. So I, I go down. I go down with everyone else. The, the guys who are going to get baptized actually go out into the water. I'm kind of standing in there. I'm about knee, knee deep in water. I got my blue Nalgene water bottle. I'm going to dip that in there. I'm going to fill that up. I got that still at home. I got my, my Jordan River water. But we're standing there in this very muddy water. And I don't know if you've had this experience in a river or a lake or wherever. And you have this realization that there are things in the water that you cannot see. You've had this realization, right? So we're there, and these groups of guys, there's about six of them, they're out in the middle, and they're still standing, but they're out there in the middle of the Jordan River, and they're about to be baptized, and there's probably about 15 of us that are, you know, a good 10 yards away, closer to the shore, but still standing in the water, and upstream behind them, maybe 10 feet, you see a large fin of some sort do a big ripple in the water, probably a big carp, but in that moment, you're a little freaked out about it, right? You kind of just kind of, I'm going to step back up here a little bit. Because the Jordan River, it isn't that impressive. It's not that impressive. It's an important boundary. It has a lot of story and history behind it, but it's not that impressive. It's not that impressive. There's nothing special about it. And Naaman here is is assuming is assuming that his salvation, that his healing is going to come through powerful ways. He's going to be healed in a powerful way. He assumes that it's going to match, that the healing will match the method of getting there. But we can't assume God's actions. See, it's going to be really easy for us, for you, for Movement Church, to find itself in moments in the next year or so to look back with nostalgia. 
to remember when that time we all gathered together in Joshua's living room for a Bible study or that meeting before things started, or, or to remember your first time coming here and feeling a sense of connection and then in the future getting on the I don't know everybody now, and I wish things would go back to the way they were. Don't assume that God only works in how God has worked before. There are patterns, there are consistencies, but it's not always going to look the same. God is already moving forward. Don't fall into that trap of nostalgia. It's also easy to look through things and see that God's going to show up and be distracted by the lens of shame. You go to the, 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 the eye doctor and you sit there and they say, well, is it better with one or is it better with two or things like that. I think what shame does is it puts down a prescription that doesn't work. And everything's fur, uh, furry. <laughs> That's what I said. Everything's blurry and fuzzy, right? Everything's, everything's out of focus. Shame has a way of telling you that you don't deserve what God is doing. Shame has a way of telling you that you really should just stay right where you are. That taking steps forward in health, taking steps forward in following Jesus, man, that's not really for you. Shame is is putting on glasses that don't belong to you and nothing makes sense. It's going to be easy for you. It's going to be easy for any of us to look around and say, well, that's just how it works. God is good. God loves me. But for me, it's there. It's easy to only see things through the lens of shame, but it's also easy to look around in the future and have unmet expectations. Whatever it is, but specifically with church, it's going to be very easy for you in the future to look around and say, this isn't what I thought it would be. And not to find the good, not find the ways in which you can be part of the solution, not to find the ways in which you can contribute and be, be with that moving forward, what God is doing, but look around and say, oh, now I'm disappointed. Because it's not what it was. Because I'm experiencing shame. Because this isn't what I thought. So we have to be warned. We have to remember this warning that we cannot assume God's actions. We cannot assume God's actions. My assumption when I started moving church is that my kids would graduate from local high schools here. My assumption was that this would be a 20-year minimum ministry, that y'all would get tired of me, that I would be here for the long haul. That is my belief That is the, in terms of ministry, philosophy, in terms of how things should move forward. But God's actions were different. God's play in a direction was different. And that's not me playing the God card, saying, well, God called me, so good luck to you. No, this is what I really think is going on, that God says you're going here and something else is coming in here for the good, for the better, for the future. But as you guys move forward, you have to remember that God is universal and you need to be warned that you can't assume God's actions. Finally, this, the challenge. The challenge is this. Never forget the mess. Never forget the mess. In 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, we read that Naaman is trying to give his gifts. He brought all that, that loot, the clothing and the, the, the gold and the silver and all this. He's going to give it to Elisha as payment. And what you read later in chapter 5 is that one of Elisha's servants takes that for him, and the guy, that guy gets condemned, and it doesn't go well for him. But if we cut off here, we pick up this story where Elisha is respond, or I'm sorry, Naaman is responding to Elisha, and he says, you have given me life, I should give you something. Take these gifts. And Elisha says, no, 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 no. So Naaman comes back and says this. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Hit pause right there. 
give me enough dirt that I can load up these mules and take them home with me, and then I will build myself a little altar on this now holy ground to make my offerings and sacrifices and my worship to the God of Israel, who is the Lord God. What is wrong with that? What's wrong with it is, is that Naaman is still working on the assumption that gods are specialized and regions, regionalized. That they are in charge of different things. He is missing, he is not understanding the fullness of the Lord God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God that we see most clearly in Jesus, that God is everywhere and in everything. That God is not there only when you can show up. God is not just in this place. He is here, yes, but this isn't the only place we can connect with God. We can connect with God when things are right and we kind of get our, our head in the right space and we're praying or reading scripture, maybe we're journaling or we're serving or we're being generous. We can connect with God with that, yes, absolutely. But we can also connect with God when we're distracted, when life is chaotic, when we're selfish, when we're being stingy, when we're kind of keeping things to ourselves. Because God is universal. Don't forget the mess. Naaman still doesn't understand. And it goes on. Naaman says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Who is Naaman's master? He's the commander of the army. His master is the king. The king is an old man. They go to worship together. They go to this temple where there's this large statue of this god, Ramon. And he's holding up the king. Maybe he's got one hand on his arm and another around his back. He is, he is walking with this elderly man whom he loves and whom he serves. And this elderly king comes, and maybe he comes to the front. Maybe he comes to a place like right here, and there's this giant statue of this god. And he comes there, and the king goes to bow down. So what do you do if you're Naaman? You bow down with this man because you've got to help him up. What Naaman is doing in that moment, you could define it as he is worshiping an idol. This is a blatant violation of what I consider to be the big sin of the Bible, idolatry. He goes, he's helping this old man down, the king of an enemy nation. He is the commander of the enemy army. He is helping this old man whom he loves worship a false god. And Elisha, if you know more of his story, isn't a guy who pulls his punches, isn't a guy who softens things. He says, go in peace. See, I don't believe that salvation is contingent on understanding. I don't believe that salvation is contingent on understanding. I've baptized so many people. It is one of my favorite things to do in ministry. I baptized Adam and Derek, baptized Gail, and Aaron, Barbara, Remington, Abigail. We all saw, if you were here for it, Jeff Hale almost drowned Andrew Church, but that's a whole other story. Baptized Jerry and Megan way, way, way back, back when. Alex. Baptized so many people. Baptized some of your kids. 
But none of those people who got baptized understood. None of us understood. Salvation is not contingent on understanding. Salvation is contingent on faith. Naaman doesn't understand. He still has a geospecific understanding of the Lord God. He is only there, so i got to take these piles of dirt and create my own space to worship. He is thinking to himself, how am I going to reconcile this mess that I am going to be by proxy and by love for this king who is an enemy worshiping this idol? And Elisha says, go in peace. Elsewhere in this story of Elisha, we find in 2 Kings, we find that that Elisha says hard things to idolaters. Elisha is involved in a miracle that will blind the army that Naaman leads or had led. The King, King Aram's army will be blinded by a miracle of God that Elisha facilitates. The mess is all over the place. And Elisha says, go in peace. See, here's the thing. I've preached this a lot, but I think we need to hear it again. God is not looking to catch you doing something wrong. God is not interested in proving to you how messed up and a mess your life is. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. His love is constant and absolute. And so what we see here is that in the mess of Naaman's life, he is the commander of an enemy army, and he goes to worship with his king to an idol, and Elisha tells him, go in peace. Now, you can find other stories in the Old Testament where idolaters are not dealt with with this kind of grace and compassion. You can find that. That's not what I'm saying to make this a universal truth. But what I am saying is, is that in this story, there's something for us. God is giving us this, and there appears to be something about our actions, our heart, our intent, all of those things. And Naaman is told to give or to go in peace. This is messy. This is complicated, but so is following Jesus. There will be times when we are confused with what we're supposed to do. Decisions that are in front of us, we say, well, what is the right decision? There will be moments where we ask ourselves, how are we supposed to respond to this? This is a new thing. The Bible doesn't talk about X, Y, or Z, so how do I respond to X, Y, or Z? And how do I respond to these things when people I love and I know that God loves and I've been called to love are doing X, Y, and Z? The mess. The mess can be the thing that we wish God would just take away. The mess could be the things that are gray and we long for black and white. But I think following Jesus isn't about avoiding or removing the mess, but about redeeming the mess. So you can't forget it. Those of you who I know your story, and those of you who know mine, know that there's plenty of mess. There's complications, there's regret, there's mistakes. Yet God is universal and still working through us even then. We can't assume that God will act this way because we really wish that God would remove the mess fully. But we can't forget the mess because in the mess, God is redeeming. So I have some questions for you. I have some questions about how we're interacting with the mess because sometimes people like me, pastors, 
will give the impression that you follow Jesus. Maybe you get baptized, and that's the marker of when you start following Jesus. You get baptized, you pray a prayer, you get confirmed, whatever it is. And then the mess goes away. And the mess goes away by then surrounding yourself with people that only agree with you. People who only believe the way that you do. Surrounding yourself with the, with the voices that just kind of reinforce things that you have. That you only listen to those folks. You're only associating with those folks. But what do we see Elisha do? You see him interacting with a foreigner. He does this multiple times in his ministry. And what, more importantly, what do we see Jesus do? We see Jesus interacting with people outside of his circle. We see the early church growing not because people were born into it, but because people who didn't know Jesus came to know Jesus. We see Paul saying there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male or female, there's no slave or free, that all are one in Christ Jesus. So the questions I have for you is, how uncomfortable are you? How uncomfortable are you in your daily life? How often are you interacting with people who are different than you, that believe differently, that think differently? How often... Are you, think, are you uncomfortable? Because I think that Elisha is really uncomfortable. I think Elisha is really uncomfortable. The king hears about this enemy general coming. The king of Israel hears about this enemy king coming, and he freaks out. He tears his robes, which is the cultural sign of mourning. He is, he is mourning preemptively because he thinks this is some sort of setup, some sort of like real politique, like some kind of conspiracy to take him down. He's going to get blamed when this guy doesn't get healed. They're going to get invaded, and that's going to be the end. And Elisha says, I think God can do so. I think Elisha is a little uncomfortable with this whole situation, interacting with somebody who's foreign. But what we see in Elisha's life is that he is extending grace to people who are outside who are outside of this community, who are outside of that nation, who are outside of that people. I think part of Elisha's mission from God was to expand, not God's love, but to expand, God's, or expand the people's understanding of God's love, that God is universal. So God is already at work in your life. God has been, God will be, God is. That work won't always go as expected. I know that's true in my life. I think it's true in yours. But that work doesn't remove the mess, it redeems it. So what about baptism? Next Sunday, I know we have one person that's going to get baptized, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be a celebration of the fact that this person has said yes to Jesus, that this person is already saved, and they are going to get to go through this symbolic, beautiful, loaded act that Jesus did that signifies the washing and the cleansing, that signifies the burial and re resurrection to new life, that signifies that this person is following Jesus. So what about baptism? What about baptism in this story of Naaman? Salvation doesn't require full understanding. Doesn't require us to have everything figured out about how to view the world or other people. Baptism isn't about starting something. Baptism isn't about starting something. Baptism is about continuing and celebrating what God has already been doing, what God is doing, and what God will continue to do. Baptism isn't about what we expect. Sometimes we get baptized, we have these moments where these kind of these mile markers in our faith, and we think perfection and holiness are coming, that, that now I won't struggle with these things, that now things will just go fine, I'll be always able to connect with God. Those things happen, but not with you, but in how God sees you. 
When we say yes to Jesus, we are perfect. We are holy in God's eyes, and we are invited to, into that reality. Baptism isn't about removing you from the mess, but equipping you to go forward into the mess. We expect things that God's ultimate salvation will happen in powerful ways and it will match the, the beauty and the glory of being saved and forgiven of our sins, but it happens in a horse trough, on the sidewalk. It can happen in a pool, pond, lake, river. It can happen in the beautiful baptistry that's like heated and chlorinated, but that's for the soft Christians, right? That's not us. I've baptized people in a portable hot tub, baptized people at camp, Baptize somebody in a reservoir of a, a, a TVA in Harlan, Kentucky, in a place by the buoys where I know some of those seventh grade boys were doing things and relieving themselves that they shouldn't have been doing in the water. Baptism is this incredible gift. Baptism is this moment that celebrates change, celebrates salvation, celebrates forgiveness and grace. Baptism. Baptism is the celebration that God's love is so complete that there's nothing we can do to change it, that all we can do is accept it. Baptism is like when Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, I, I assume there are people in this room we're thinking about baptism right now. Maybe, maybe that's for them. And maybe they think to themselves, well, I've been baptized before and, and as a kid or just earlier in my life as an infant. All that's good. All that matters. All that is, is, is great and wonderful. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that there's nothing in Scripture says that we can't be baptized again. That we can't make our own decision to get baptized. In fact, what we see in Scripture is that people make a decision to follow you and then they get baptized. I don't think you make it a requirement, but you give it as an opportunity. And so God, for those in this room who are thinking, I don't know if I want to do this, this is weird, horse trough, I don't know. Like, I hope they hear this. I hope they hear the invitation that you're making to celebrate what you've done in our lives. And I hope, I hope that we will remember that you're universal. I hope we will take the caution and the warning that we can't expect or assume you to act in certain ways. And I hope we'll take the challenge to not try to remove or ignore the mess, but to embrace it because you're redeeming it. And whether that's in baptism, whether that's in the Lord's Supper here in a moment, that we will continue to take steps of following you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Tim and Hannah are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in our communion song. The church I grew up in, it was beautiful and so informative of my experience and my faith. It was, it was a place I, I grew up, the place that I love and cherish. But in that church, baptism was, I think, elevated to a point that was not consistent with Scripture. Baptism was the thing that you had to do in order to experience salvation. Or it was just this weird pressure thing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the pressure. I don't want to do this thing that I don't think Scripture says. I think what Scripture says is that if you believe, you get baptized. But faith is what saves you, not an act. That is key, key and crucial here. But in the church I grew up in, baptism was this line in the sand. And you couldn't take communion 
And I remember as a kid, we had these gilded golden plates, right? And we'd all be the individual circles, and the little cups would fit in there, and then the middle would be this like doily, because that's a word we use all the time, right? And there would be those little crackers all crumbled up. And it would get passed down the aisle. I remember as a kid, it would get passed, and I'd have to keep passing because I couldn't take it. And I remember thinking, like, I bet that's something special. I'm kind of thirsty. I'm kind of hungry. Why can't I have some of that? And then I was 10, and I got baptized. And there was not, you know, angels appearing. The colors more vibrant. That didn't happen. I was soaking wet, and there's, like, standing in the church lobby. It was weird, right? It's a weird thing. And that next Sunday, I got to take communion. It got passed, and, you know, I'm taking this. And it was a stale cracker. And it was cheap, off-brand grape juice. And there was nothing special about it. We have things that are similar to that. There's nothing special about communion here at Movement. Other than the thing that makes it so special. that we are given a gift to remember, to celebrate. So if you've said yes to Jesus, not if you've been baptized, not if you're a member here or somewhere else, not if you understand everything, not if your life is not a mess, you've said yes to Jesus. If you believe, here in a moment, I'm going to invite you to go to these tables up front. And you're going to take that stale thing that I'm not sure is bread, but we call it that, right? And you're going to eat it. And you're going to peel back that juice. And you're going to drink it. And there's nothing special about it other than this. The God of the universe, out of love, came and died for you. That's what we say yes to. If you're willing, if you're able, I invite you to stand. And these communion tables are open to you as we worship. Let's do just that.